Hey Northerners, a listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Northern Blood podcast. Listener discretion is advised. episode is going to be one that I'm sure everyone remembers. Um, it is the case of the Richardson murders, but a lot of people, unfortunately, don't even know it as the Richardson murders, but more the case of J.R. and Jeremy Steinke. It was a case that happened here in Alberta, and so, and not only in Alberta, but in a very kind of small town at the time of about 60,000 people. So, um, without further ado, this is the Richardson murders. So somewhere in Canada, perhaps near her parents' old home in Medicine Hat, Alberta, where she massacred her own family, Jasmine Richardson is walking free. We don't know where she is located. Um, Obviously, she's changed her name and all of those things. So it has been 14 years since she slashed her little brother's throat, left him to die in his blood-spattered toys, and she waited for her boyfriend to stab her parents to death in a violent frenzy. So a couple years ago, Richardson faced a final court hearing and she was actually freed of any court ordered conditions, restrictions, or supervision. She actually offered zero apology or expression of remorse for what she had done. So she is now 26 and is living quietly in the community at a secret location. Richardson's name cannot be published in her home country where she is known as JR and she's even being described as a poster child for rehabilitation. But residents in the ordinary suburban neighborhood near the Richardson family death house cannot forget and are not so sure that Richardson should be living among them. Someone has said if you are old enough to do the crime you should do the time. Neighbors cannot forget April 23, 2006, a bright but freezing spring day when a young boy spied bodies through the window of the Richardson family home, sparking a discovery that was to make Canadian criminal history. By that time, Richardson and her boyfriend, 23-year-old goth and self-styled 300-year-old werewolf, Jeremy Steinke, were on the run. The neat gray weatherboard home with the gable roof and trimmed green lawn held grisly secrets that would shock the police who attended the scene. It was some time the previous night, Richardson, who was 12, stabbed eight-year-old Jacob to death while her boyfriend, with the encouragement of her, murdered her parents. Detectives entering the home found Richardson's parents in the basement and her brother in an upstairs bedroom. They would later piece together the murder scene. Jasmine and Jeremy entered the home and Stikey killed his girlfriend's mother first. Wearing a neoprene mask and carrying a knife, he stabbed 48-year-old Deborah Richardson 12 times, including a 12-centimeter deep piercing to her heart. Hearing his wife's screams, Mark Richardson, who was 42, came down the stairs to her aid and was set upon by Stanky, who stabbed him 24 times, including nine times in the back. 
Jasmine reported wanting to take on her brother, eight-year-old Jacob, and climbed upstairs where he lay in his bedroom and she stabbed him five times, including a wide, deep slash across the neck. Jacob would be found lying on his bed, surrounded by blood-spattered toys. When police arrived, they first feared 12-year-old Jasmine's absence meant that she had been kidnapped by some crazed murderer. In reality, the pair had plotted the killing so they could run away together. Jasmine's parents had actually forbid her to see Stanky once they saw who he was and saw his characteristics. They'd actually met at a punk rock concert and immediately became entangled, and he was a heavy goth in his lifestyle. Photographs on her MySpace page showed how the clean young girl began changing under Stanky's influence. Stanky had grown up with an alcoholic mother whose partners abused him, and he was bullied by his classmates in school. A court later heard that by the age of 13, Stanky was diagnosed with depression and hyperactivity, and he later tried to hang himself. Over the next 10 years, he adopted the persona of a 300-year-old werewolf and wore a vial of blood around his neck. He had a user account at vampirefreaks.com, and in 2006, he and Jasmine fell in love. When Jasmine's parents discovered the relationship, they literally forbade her from seeing him or going out with him. Online accounts belonging to both Stanky and Jasmine revealed that it was she who came up with the murder plan. Writing to Jeremy online, she said, I have this plan and it begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. Another message Stanky wrote on his Windows Live Spaces account about her parents read, Their throats I want to slit. They will regret the SHIT they have done, especially when I see to it that they are gone. They shall pay for their insolence. Finally, there shall be silence and their blood shall be payment. What a disturbing thing to say. Jasmine discussed her plans to kill her parents with her friends, but no one believed her. On the night of the murders, Jasmine would later testify her brother Jacob pleaded for his life and emitted a gurgling sound as she stabbed him, Stanky finishing him off by slitting his throat. Later, she would say that she killed him because it was too cruel to leave him without parents. Two hours after their deaths, Jasmine and Stanky were seen laughing and kissing in a restaurant. Soon after the pair's arrest, Stanky asked Jasmine to marry him by a letters from his prison cell. Asked later why they committed the murders, Richardson said, I loved him so much I thought it would bring us closer together. In June 2007, age 14, Jasmine Richardson went on trial for three counts of first-degree murder. She was found guilty on all three and sentenced to 10 years in jail, the maximum allowed by Canada's Youth Criminal Justice Act. In 2008, Stanky was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences in prison, with an earliest parole date of 25 years. His lawyers argued that Stanky was in an alcohol and drug-fueled haze when he snapped and stabbed Jasmine's parents. They described him as a love-struck, immature man who would do anything to keep his preteen girl's affection. His friends testified that he had asked for help to get rid of the Richardson because he was worried she would leave him if he didn't. He claimed in his evidence that it was Jasmine who slashed her brother's throat while, she, while he watched from a doorway. The prosecution fought Sankey's attempts to lessen the charges to second-degree murder to manslaughter, saying a father fought for his family's life to his death, and you and the Medicine Hat police officers who mourned the loss years later because of the terrible things they saw. Believed to be the youngest person ever convicted of a multiple murder in Canada, Jasmine was committed to a psychiatric hospital for four years. She spent a further 
four under conditional community supervision and was allowed to attend Mount Royal University. Announcing her absolute freedom in May, Queen's Bench Justice Scott Booker told her, I think your parents and brother would be proud of you. Clearly, you cannot undo the past. You can only live each day with the knowledge you can control how you behave and what you do. Some of her old neighbors in Medicine Hat agreed Jasmine should be given a second chance. But Sue England told CBC she wondered how she will continue on with her life with that being a part of her past life. She says, I have sympathy for her, but you can't imagine anyone doing something like that. Steinke has actually changed his name in prison to Jackson May and made a failed attempt to appeal his sentence. Now, to conclude, Jeremy Steinke is still in jail, and he will be in jail for at least 25 years as he got the three concurrent life sentences. Now, JR, or Jasmine, is living somewhere, I've been told, in Medicine Hat um, under a new name and trying to, I guess, make the best of her life under the circumstances. But how do you shake something like that? How do you shake knowing that you don't have anybody because you killed your entire family? I just can't wrap my brain around that. So that was the case of the Richardson murders or as some people call it, um, the J.R. and Jeremy Steinke murder. Now, for the information, I thought I would do kind of a Southern Alberta episode here where half of it was the Jeremy Steinke, Jasmine Richardson murders, and the other half of it is a case that I'm going to talk to you about now, Um, and it is actually the murder of Lorraine McNabb and Peter Sopo. Um, It happened December 13th, 1997, and they had been dating for about six months, and they were actually driving home after a dinner out with family. They had been um, hanging out with some friends, and they had been having coffee and huckleberry pie with their close friends, and they didn't actually want to go and their neighbors actually said like oh man like we hate to see them go like why don't you stay for another pot of coffee and it's almost like they should have stayed a little bit longer and who knows what could have happened now to kind of go back um Lorraine McNabb had been married previously before and from my research he and her had been married I believe for about 18 years and the relationship was good but in talking to everybody kind of after they had divorced and how Lorraine had kind of been acting in regards to her ex-husband and she just felt like he was very controlling and he didn't want her to do the things that she wanted to do and he didn't want her to go to horseback riding he didn't want her to hang out with her friends or family and he was kind of controlling now i've heard interviews where he's been interviewed and he basically obviously denies all of these things but they have talked to a lot of Lorraine's friends and some of her family members and they've all concluded that that was the case that her ex-husband was very controlling and for instance when they had farmers in their field because they owned an acreage um and when the workers needed lunch i guess a lot of the workers out there just expected you know sandwiches from the wives they would again this was in 1997 and so you know they expected kind of little sandwiches and things like that and her ex-husband would actually make her create 
this big elaborate dinner of like roast beef and mashed potatoes and this, that, and the other thing. And, and, uh, he was just very, very controlling when it came to doing anything that she wanted to do outside of what he wanted to do. So after about 18 years, um, she'd had enough and they separated and divorced. Um, and I don't actually know the length of time in between the divorce and when she met Peter, but, um, Peter was very much her type. He was tall and handsome. From what I understand, Lorraine was quite tall. She was, I believe like five, eight or five, nine. And Peter was over six feet. He was an RCMP officer. Lorraine was, um, a, she worked on the farm when she was married to her first husband. But after they divorced, she actually, a little bit prior to her getting divorced, she had actually gone back to school because she had never kind of made a living herself. And so she wanted to have her ducks in a row before they separated. And when they did that, she had gone back to school to become a kindergarten teacher. So once they separated, she kind of started doing her own thing. And if you listen to any of the interviews or any of the podcasts and things like that about her coworkers, they adored her. They said like, she's not that kind of person that you would just say she could light up a room, that she literally could light up a room where her personality was beautiful. She was a strong personality, but she was kind to her students. And so not only on that front, but she also was a very, very independent woman. And so she had actually come from a ranching family. And so once her and her husband had split up, she went out and purchased her own kind of little ranch farm. And so she literally ran the entire farm herself. There were no other people. There were no farm hands. She did everything herself. And she was so incredibly proud of the fact that she did that. And this was all on her. Um, and so I guess from what people say, she could be a little bit intimidating because she ran her own show. She didn't need anybody. And so anybody that would try to set her up with someone, I think those men would be intimidated because she again was tall and so, um, and she was also very strong and determined and strong-willed and she did her own thing. And so when she met Peter, um, they hit it off immediately. Peter was a strong looking man. He was big, he was strong, he was tall, but his personality, even though he was an RCMP officer, he was, from what I understand, a big gentle giant. And so they blended so well and they say opposites attract. And so I think that's what happened. Um, and so I guess at that particular night, they had decided they were going to go back to Lorraine's place. And now before I kind of cut into that part of the story, there has been a lot of talk. Um, now, again, I will preface with the fact that this case is unsolved. After 20 years, 22 years, I believe, and obviously this still haunts the community and their family and their friends, and it's a small community. If you know Alberta, you know Southern Alberta, you know Pincher Creek is probably a blip on the radar as far as small towns and it's really really small and it is in this corridor of beautiful beautiful country like pincher creek is stunning um but it is also known for its wind gusts and if you drive through pincher creek 
they have the big wind turbines that are absolutely massive and they have thousands of them. And so if you have wind turbines in your community, that means that you get some hefty wind gusts because you can get energy from them. (laughs) So again, um, she, when she started working at the school, she has such a shining personality that she always was friends with people. And I guess there was a particular day where she saw another teacher who was sitting at a lunch table by himself and his name was Wally. And, uh, they kind of took to a friendship. Now, again, I'm sure you guys know someone who has been in a situation like this where you kind of offer kindness and nice gestures and they sometimes maybe get mistaken for something other than what they are. And so that is kind of what happened here with Wally. I guess Wally was attracted to her and I think wanted to date her. And they did go out for coffee a couple times. And then I believe they went on a canoe trip as well um, because Wally had a canoe trip planned, but he didn't really know a whole lot about canoeing. And Lorraine has always wanted to go canoeing and she was an avid swimmer. And so he invited her and they went and the story goes that somehow Wally ended up flipping his canoe, ended up in the river and was drowning and Lorraine had to save him. So after that, I think that Wally just felt this deep connection to her, that she was his person and they were going to be together. And so thus the stalking began. There are multiple, multiple resources that basically state that he would call her at all hours of the day and night. He would be seen parked on her rural road, which from what I understand, the landscape of where her house was, was kind of in a bit of a valley and there was only kind of one road in, one road out. And so obviously if you've been in the country, like if you drive through rural Alberta and let's just say you stop for, I don't know, five minutes and you throw your hazards on because you need to reply to an email right away. Um, someone's going to pull over. Someone's going to ask you if you're okay, if your vehicle's okay, if you have a flat tire, if you need anything, like it's just that sense of community. And so in that regard, all of her neighbors noticed this person that didn't live in the community, but was always there. And then eventually they kind of picked up on the fact that his name was Wally and that he worked at the school with Lorraine. And so I guess when she would have friends or family over for coffee or for dinner, and her phone would ring and she would screen her calls and say like, oh, I can't believe he's calling again. And oh my goodness, I need to, I can't answer right now. And gosh, when will he stop? And all of these things. And so it escalated quite heavily to the point where she had to tell him, that's not what I want. And then the time lapsed where she met Peter and Wally still continued to call and still continued to be around. And even though they worked together, um, I guess Lorraine had kind of hoped that the presence of Peter would kind of push Wally away. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. So fast forward to um, that particular evening. They had actually gone to, I believe, um, Peter's some kind of party for the RCMP. And so they had gotten all dressed up and they had gone out and on their way home, they had decided they were going to go back to Lorraine's place. So she lived in a mobile home on the rural property, which was actually just outside of Pincher Creek. Um, and so what they do say is that it was a full moon that night. And so if you live in the country, now I lived in the country for a short period of time 
And on the nights that there was a full moon, it literally lights up the entire field. And so they say that because of that, they probably saw their killer before he shot them. Um, and it was a double first degree murder of McNabb and Sopo. And it literally took the entire community by storm. Now, after years and years of investigation, they did come down to the fact that the perpetrator was someone that was known to the victims. He had to have known they weren't going to be home for hours and that they were going to be home at a particular time. Now, on another front, there has been certain things that have been said about Wally, basically stating that he would show up uninvited to events or restaurants where Pete and Lorraine were sitting and eating dinner. And no one really understood how he knew they were going to be there. And it happened at like different locations as well. It was almost like he knew their schedule. And then, you know, there was a couple friends that Wally would just know things about them. Almost like he was talking to Lorraine, but all of those friends know that Lorraine would never have said those things to him. And so it's just like he was almost like stalking her and everyone she knew. And so for instance, one of her friends, you know, ran into Wally at a store and she didn't really know him. She just knew of him. And he said, oh, I heard that you won the curling bond spiel last weekend. And she said, how would you know that? And he said, oh, I just have my ways. So he was not only interested, I think, romantically in Lorraine, but he also was interested in her life and who's in it, who's around it, which that in itself is super creepy. So again, there have been a lot of things that have basically stated that he was their number one suspect. So to kind of talk about Lorraine again, um, so she has deep roots in Southern Alberta. She was literally someone that would be called a true cowgirl. She competed in rodeo events and she grew up on a ranch and that ranch had been in her family since 1884. So she was a farm farm girl. She knew how to ride horses. She knew how to rope cattle. She knew all those things. So this is why she was a little bit intimidating. Now to kind of go into Peter Sopo's roots, they didn't run as deeply in Alberta. He actually grew up in BC and their family moved around a lot. So he was actually at the time they were so young. Peter Sopo was 52 and he had actually been um, in the service of the RCMP for 32 years. And he was actually ending the end of his career and looking forward to retirement. Lorraine McNabb was 40, I believe, maybe 42. I cannot remember, but they're both so young. Like I believe I did the math the other day and Lorraine would have been like 61, I think this year, which is crazy. So again, everybody said that Pete was such a good guy. He played hockey and baseball and all of those things. And they were not the kind of people that would have had enemies. They had both been divorced, like I mentioned before, and Lorraine was starting a new chapter in her life. And so she was really enjoying her time with Peter. And so no one knew what happened after that. When you live in the country, it is so dark and no one heard anything. And so it wasn't until the next morning that Peter didn't show up for work. And that was when the police were actually dispatched to Lorraine's property. The, I guess, beautiful thing about living in a small town is most people know what other people are doing. And so they knew that if Peter wasn't at work and he wasn't at his own home, that he would likely be at Lorraine's. And so they ended up going to her home and that's where they found them. 
Now, when police got to Lorraine's property, they searched and they searched and they searched and they couldn't find anything. They say that it was almost like this person was so meticulous, but also was very, very sure of how to not leave evidence behind. So eventually they did find a horse trailer and they checked And unfortunately, that is where they found the bodies of Lorraine McNabb and Peter Sopo. Now, it is said that in the horse trailer, they actually were on opposite sides of the horse trailer. And Lorraine McNabb was actually face down and Peter Sopo was face up in the trailer. But again, with their size, even Lorraine couldn't have been a light woman to move around. And Peter Sopo being over six feet, I think they, I believe they said that he was like over 200 pounds. So this had to have been a strong individual to A, drag them into the trailer, B, move them onto opposite sides of the trailer and ensure that there was no evidence left anywhere. So of course, in a murder like this, the first thing that people look at is exes, ex-husbands, ex-wives, things like that. And so the second that they did a little research, they found out that obviously it was a tumultuous relationship with Lorraine and her ex-husband. And so they brought him in for questioning and asked him all the things and he literally denies everything till this day. And they ended up getting some tips. And one of these tips was that there was a red sports car that was parked at the end of the dead end country realm to Lorraine McNabb's the night before the murders. They also learned that in the months before she was killed, Lorraine McNabb again was getting a lot of unwanted phone calls, as many as 20 a day. So this is where Wally comes in. 20 years after the murders, her friends and family talk a lot about hindsight. After something happens, like your best friend or your sister being murdered, you look at everything completely different. So they started looking into this sports car and it turns out Wally has a red sports car and he takes meticulous care of this sports car. And so they start doing a lot of research. Now, another thing you should know about Wally is that his wife actually died a couple years before. So he was a widower and there was another anonymous tip that he actually had been washing his red sports car the morning after the murders. The police searched the car wash looking for the murder weapon, combed his property, even cutting down trees on his shooting range to examine the bullets embedded in them. So as the investigation moved into the summer, a dive team searched for the murder weapon at the base of Lundberg Falls, which is a local tourist attraction. Meanwhile, area residents debated whether the suspect was even capable of the murders. Wally was a teacher and he was soft-spoken and he was a shorter gentleman. And so they really just couldn't physically think that he could A, drag them both into the trailer, not leave evidence. Again, all of the things that they talked about before. Now, in closing, I know you're going to be like, oh, closing. What do you mean closing? Unfortunately, all of the tips that came out and all of the investigation into Wally never led anywhere. He has walked away free. He's in his 70s now. He's a grandpa. And unfortunately, he wasn't the guy according to the police and it wasn't her ex-husband and it wasn't anyone that they could think of and so the case of Lorraine McNabb and Peter Sopo remains unsolved and it is still one of those cases that 
has shaken the community. People were never the same after that. They carried weapons. You know, if some kind person might pull over to see if you have a flat tire, you might think something ill of them because of the entire situation. And over the next 18 months after their murder, another man actually was discovered beaten to death on the town's main street. And then a woman vanished and her body was found months later in a creek. And then an RCMP officer died in a light plane crash. And then after a local man was killed in police custody, questions were raised about whether the RCMP might have even played a role in Peter and Lorraine's murders. And so unfortunately, Northerners, I don't have any more of the story to tell you. Um, This is a case that is super, super sad. And Lorraine probably would have been a grandma. And it, it just is so sad that there are cases like this that go unsolved. And unfortunately, there's not a whole lot people can do. I mean, if you truly might feel like the RCMP or police or whatever is involved, then how do you get the case to move forward? So unfortunately, I know you guys hate that, but this is the end of the episode. And yeah, I hope that you guys enjoyed it and I will talk to you very soon. Stay safe, Northerners. Thank you so much for listening. Every case I talk about is so important and deserves the attention. If you could kindly share this podcast with your friends, that would be amazing. If this is the first time you're listening to Northern Blood, thank you. I would love for you to go give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Now stay safe.